You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Good evening. Thank you so much for being here. My name's Emma Goldswell and this is my weekend outing. And I tell you what, guys, we have got a jam-packed show. I'm super excited because for the first time ever, I've spoken to an Olympian. Yes, an actual Olympian. Not just any Olympian. Later on in this show, you'll meet Chelsea Wolfe, the first ever trans athlete to qualify for Team USA. Brilliant. Plus, you'll meet an inspirational LGBT campaigner who, let's just say, he's packed more campaigns and causes into the last 40 years than most of us have had hot dinners. One of the things he did saw him knocking tennis balls over the wall at Strangeways Prison. Why? Because prisoners back then didn't have access to condoms, so he packed the tennis balls with them. Hey, it's one way to change the world, isn't it? Our first stop, though, will be to hear a beautiful love story. Amir and Amir, yes, really, suffered family rejection when they both came out, but they went on to meet each other. And they then became the first South Asian gay couple to get married in Bradford. Please welcome Amir and Amir. Thank you guys for joining me. Ooh, thank and, you for having us on. Uh, well, do you know what? I'm thrilled to get you on because you are real role models. But can we just um, talk about how similar you are, first of all? But if there was a prize for a couple that had the most in common, you must be up there, don't you think? You've both got the same name. You're both from oh, Bradford. Yeah. You're both. Yeah. From, I think there's a quite a few more similarities, aren't there? Oh, yeah. Would you like a list? Yes. yes. <laughs> Go for it. So we both have the same name. We are both of South Asian heritage. We are both of Pakistani ethnicity. Mm-hmm. We are also of the same tribe. We also speak the same language, which is spoken by like little over 2 million people in the world. We also, um, even our parents come from the same villages in Pakistan. We also went to the same school growing up. <laughs> <laughs> it was just meant to be, wasn't it? That's, that's where our similarities end. Yeah, that is where they end. Yeah, that's yeah, but, yeah but if you were a group of people and someone shouts at me, what do you do? You both turn around then, because I know you spell your names differently, but that doesn't, you know, help people shout. We, we just name. know. We, yeah. we we just know. It's the tone of voice, like, and <laughs> you know, we we just know our friends who they want. And or they might just say a few people start saying A one A two. Yeah. Also, I just ignore people, and so he'll <laughs> he'll pick it up. I'll pick it up for both of us. And if there's anything worth passing on to me, I'll pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you don't give yourself nicknames then. You haven't. No. Have you merged your name like a sort of Jedward? That'd be cool, wouldn't it? Oh, A squared. A squared. A squared. I like that. Yeah. A squared. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, it's really good you're on, because as I said, the whole role model thing is really important. I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that it is really hard for people in your situation from Pakistani families, from Muslim backgrounds to come out as gay, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, I've got to say, I haven't uh, heard the word role model being used for us. It's nice. Keep it I'm here to pick you up, guys. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, uh, but, you know, I I think even more so than role models, I think representation is key. Yeah. Because the queer South Asian community exists. uh, It exists on a statistical point as well. You know, the the chances of somebody being gay and Caucasian is the same as it is South Asians as well. But unfortunately, due to uh, cultural uh, taboos and religious ruling, Many South Asians don't feel comfortable coming out or, you know, they feel that they, there is a lot to lose. But, you know, I always say that, oh, I believe in the fact that 
there's no price you know there is a price for freedom that people pay but freedom is key you know it's the ultimate thing mm. you get to express yourself truly and and be yourself there is um uh, there's a price to pay and that's why a lot of South Asians don't come out as well because you're at risk of losing a whole community uh, yep. a whole a whole family and also in in danger for, for some people as well of you know mm. violence as well so it's mm -hmm. it's a really really tough one that's why I always say to everyone no matter what background they have you know if you're planning to come out just make sure that you're in a safe position to do so yeah and I, I, absolutely and right now where we are at in our lives we've got to the point whereby we take pride in being visible because we know that there are people who look like us that are not able to be visible. You know, it, it's like somebody marching in a pride march. They may be doing it because somebody else in a different country who is queer is not able to. So it's very, very important that, you know, if you are able to be the representation, then go for it. Absolutely. I mean, I've, it's not unheard of for a lot of gay men in your culture to actually do what's expected of them and have an arranged marriage and, and then just have, you know, gay affairs on the side. I mean, it goes on, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Gay women as well. Gay oh, women yeah. as well. Yeah. I've, I've heard a, a fair amount of stories, you know, shrouded in a lot more mystery, shall we say. But oh. yeah, they, they gay women exist as well who have to um, abide by the... Uh, binary rules of man meets woman has child has home they're often forgotten about as well they are. our community yeah absolutely yeah. so were your parents quite strict in terms of um religion <laughs> <laughs> you're laughing oh, now but i'm guessing it wasn't funny at the time you know, this, this interview is going to turn into a no, therapy, you, therapy session real do, quick do yeah shall i go first and we can build up to yours yeah go on you know oh, okay, let's, let's build up to, to his okay? Oh, okay i think but for me my, my mother wasn't quite strict. She was just like an, a, a normal strict mom. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I think because she had me very young, it was my the influence of my grandparents. My grandparents were really strict and horrible and mean mm -hmm. and like crazy. <laughs> and when I was, you know, young, about 18, 19, I decided to distance myself from the most of my majority of my family because I knew they were toxic and I knew they wouldn't accept me eventually. So I sort of severed that before I, it, it could, you know, hurt me later in life which was uh, the best thing to do at the time so my so yeah my upbringing was just not absolutely normal strict but there was still like you know cultural things you know going on things that you couldn't do and I was just a bit of a rebel I guess and I did what I wanted to do and um, pushed and pushed and pushed because I needed to live at the end of the day and this one Amir over here you had a bit of a different upbringing, didn't you? Before before I hear your story, though, just to go back to... to yeah. To, I mean, I'm going to have to call you A1 or something. I hate that. Yeah, that's Sorry. fine. A1 and A2. I'm A1. <laughs> that's good. That's good for us. Well, see, what was the action then when you did eventually tell your mum? I guess you were a teenager at the time? Uh, no, I was a, I was a grown man. Yeah. I, I was an adult. I had finished university. I had... Um, got my first job I was I had to be in a position where if something bad happened I was able to fend for myself mm -hmm. you know and when I did come out to my mom it, it was fine because she recognized she realized I was gay years beforehand so she had the time to deal with that doesn't mean things haven't been easy or hasn't been turbulent at times because you know I don't speak to any other family member so it's sort of you know here and there with relationships <laughs> But you still have a good relationship with your mum. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Mums are amazing, aren't they? I've spoken to so many people who's just mum knew. Mums always know. Mm -hmm. yeah, oh, they, they do. do. Yeah. 
they really do. So moving on to Amir 2, I really don't like calling you that. I feel like... (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm guessing you were from a really, really strict background. Yeah, I don't use the word strict anymore, Emma. And the reason why I don't is because um, I think it kind of takeaways from what it actually was. And I would actually call it an ultra-Orthodox household. Okay. I think I think parents can be strict regardless of you know their religious beliefs, but I think when you are raised in an orthodox household, a lot of the rule set that you experience is dictated by religious beliefs. And I grew up in an ultra orthodox family, an ultra orthodox Muslim family, mm-hmm. whereby you are dictated to as to what time you wake up, what hand you use to eat, go to toilet how many times you pray who you pray to what direction you know you name it it is full-on organized religion so you're spending um, a lot of time reading the quran and going to mosque and, and everything yeah, uh, the, the quran and more yeah really you know religious te- texts in addition to the quran as well but you know what it's like religion is down to interpretation and you know i have no qualms against anybody who wants to take the religious route you know we've all got to do what we've got to do in order to make sense of the world but it can't be to the detriment of you know one's upbringing uh, and for me that what that was the case unfortunately so it was a very orthodox family you know I was being made to follow rules that kind of almost go against human nature it really does screw with a person's um, head um, now that I am in therapy and I'm getting mental health support I've begun to realize and unravel the fact that you know I did um, have quite a toxic upbringing you know my I would go as far as saying that my parents were quite toxic and abusive in their um, way of raising me uh, and so unfortunately because of their religious views that are driven uh, by um, sorry their, their views on homosexuality that mm-hmm. are driven by the re- religious views uh, meant that they no longer want to uh, have a relationship with me so they um, have uh, thrown me out uh, of their family uh, household and I have not been in touch with them for a number of years but it's got to the point where you know you realize that everything happens for a reason family is not what you think it is you know as gay people we get to choose our family so true and yeah yeah no I, absolutely and there's so much to unpick that I think it's just best that I pursue my happiness and freedom rather than trying to you know, do a botched job of understanding each other. Yeah, well, it sounds like, I mean, you would have known that the reaction was going to be bad. You know, yes. you'd, you'd live with them for, you know, all yes. your life. So you knew what their views were going to be. Unfortunately, but- I didn't have I didn't have a choice but to come out because in my family, you know, arranged marriages are, are very common, particularly first cousin marriages, which scientifically speaking are a little bit unhealthy. Please don't send me letters, anyone. That's just my view. Um, but, you know, yeah. uh, so all, all of those pressures were on me. And it got to the point where I was being asked, why? Why would you not get married to such and such person? And so I had to sort of spell it out for them. But, you know, I, I do think that on a level, your parents know, especially, mm. you know, maybe mums, for example. And, mm. you know, but there we go. That's what happened. And they said, here's the door, get out. <laughs> so who was the conversation with was it your mum was it your dad or whole family so together it, or and so it was with my dad but my family was there you know mm. in, in 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 bits and then it was 
know, kind of like a death by a thousand paper cuts kind of thing. Um, but, you know, spinning it into a positive, I, you know, if I had to go through the same experience in order to be where I am right now in life, I would, I would go through the same experience again, because on the other side is my truth, my authenticity, my honesty, uh, my dignity, and my happiness, ultimately. And, you know, there's no price that's too high to pay for your own happiness. Yeah, amen to that. Um, we are telling a beautiful love story, the story of Amir and Amir, who went to the same school, they both got the same name, they both live in Bradford, the parents are in the same part of Pakistan. Is it almost like looking in the mirror sometimes, guys? Well, we do sometimes make a joke, like if, especially if we're on a, uh, on a night out or, you know, if we're uh, out at a bar and somebody looks at us and uh, wants to ask us questions we always end it with we're actually cousins <laughs> <laughs> and it makes them really uncomfortable and for because, about five seconds and they're and I'm drunk like, as well so they get very yeah. confused i'm like yeah we're in love we've got the same name we're from the same ethnicity same town and we're cousins <laughs> but just, and then we let it linger until it gets really uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, guys. oh well and um, just before we heard um, most of your coming out story didn't we Amir, Amir too for one of a, a way of separating you and I yeah. think it's fair to say that you had a more orthodox and religious family so I mean literally as soon as you said the words I'm gay I'm not having this arranged marriage you were told to pack your bags that very day were you? Yes yeah I, well yes and no it kind of turned into these um, constant arguments and back and forths and um, what a lot of South Asians tend to find is that they have to come out again and again and again the power of denial is very very strong mm. and so it you know your parents will hear it one day and then the next day they will warm up to presenting you with another girl or, or another proposition or something you know it was kind of strained for a couple of weeks and then my dad sort of sat me down and said um, are the rumors that I'm hearing about you true and I said what rumors I'm the one who's already told you I'm gay they said, well, if that's the case, then there's a door. Out you go. Uh, if anybody dies, we'll let you know. Other than that, we don't want to hear from you. And so then it was a little bit difficult. I started sleeping somewhat rough for a little while or, you know, sneaking back or sleeping at a friend's or something like that until I managed to get a flat sorted. And how uh, old were you at this point? So I was 25. I was actually 25. Yeah. I, I lived away since I was 18. Destiny brought me back due to a job change. And my parents were incessant on um, me moving back into the family home, all as part of um, exerting control, I suppose, because, mm. you know, they called you back, they'll find you somebody, you get married, you get a job, all as per their approval. And did they think that they could change you? Because you, you do hear this sometimes from religious parents, don't you? That they think yeah, that my... They yeah, 100%. My, my, I came out to my siblings before I yeah, came out to my parents, actually. And funnily enough, my sister is a, is a consultant ophthalmologist, and she was the one who was alluding to me getting conversion therapy. So, you know, every Wednesday when you guys have been clapping for the NHS, <laughs> clap a little less harder for my sister. <laughs> oh, my God. So she had a conversation with some... Uh, religious leader and she was like oh he's really different and he's really nice you know and he was even high-fiving your nieces and he's really cool and I was like okay great whatever and then he was like he you know we told him about your situation and he said he just needs love he just needs love and I was like okay I know where this and you, you know you should just meet him and he'll just talk to you and this will happen and I was like no I, you know I, I've grown up in an ultra-orthodox Muslim family and I will say that again and again and again 
and I have had religious leaders say all sorts of stuff to me, some great, some pro-terrorism and everything in between. And I know, you know, I know when um, somebody tries to uh, coerce me into these sort of corners and, you know, I'm too smart. to. Were you surprised at your sister saying that? I was very disheartened. And that's something that I struggled dealing with, the betrayal. I, I saw it as a sense of betrayal because I did come out and they were accepting, including my siblings. And, you know, when my parents found out they did a 180 and then they started to um, suggest therapies or became overtly homophobic and violent at one point as well. And I think that the betrayal, because one thing that I can't stand in life is insincerity. I hate insincerity. Mm. Be who you are. If you are a horrible person, be that horrible person because somebody will fall in love with you and have babies with you. But don't tell me that you're lovely and then turn out to be something else. I think that's what hurt a lot. I think with my parents, I knew that it was coming. I always knew that it was going to come on a level. And I, in a way, tried to protect them by not coming out. But with my siblings, I expected more. Yeah, but you did it because you knew that somewhere in your heart that you would find the love of a good man and you would move on to, to a better life. And, and you did that, didn't you? Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, you know, honesty is the best policy. I try to be as honest as I possibly can, as always. And that's the reason why I came out. And yeah, 100%. You know, I believe in equality. We both believe in equality. And that's the whole thing with being queer. It's about being equal to our heterosexual counterparts. And we are equally worthy of love. And yeah, then came our story and we met and um, here oh, we Oh, yes, go, go on a mere one then. Tell us, <laughs> tell us about the moment you first clapped eyes on this one. So how we met. Oh, my God. What a, what a story. I think my I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> we met through a, a mutual friend. You know, as, as Amir said, he was back in our hometown and I was there, too. And this mutual friend was saying to him, oh, you can meet my friend. You've got the same name. We're going a night out. So we ended up going on a night out in Leeds and we didn't like each other. No, it wasn't no. love at first sight. No. It wasn't, you know, rainbows and butterflies and unicorns and stars. It was... It wasn't even cousins at it, first No, it, it was, you know, he thought I was too much, too wild and crazy. I thought he was really stuck up. Yeah. Um, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, by chance, we ended up going on another night out. This was after... You said you would never go on a night out with me ever again. I believe my exact words to our friend were... Go on. I don't think he's the calibre of person Caliber. that I would <gasps> hang out with. And who do you think you are? Oh, you my God. You think you're the queen, mother. Then, yeah, I went on my high horse back to my kingdom. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, who do you think you are? Beyonce walking up. <laughs> but um yeah we went on another night out and you, you were driving us this night out weren't you mm. and your best friend at the time was sitting in the front of the car with you i always remember this moment i was in the back of the car with my friends your friend um had a crush on me in the car he did. in that moment he said i looked really good and then that's when you recognize that i did look good yeah and you're like oh okay because you got jealous of your, your, you feel you know your friend probably. yeah probably then we just hit it off that night it Honestly, it, it was just really natural, Emma, like completely, we hit it off and then we, you know, carried on texting and calling and um, going for drives and listening to music and just getting to know each other. And then with the help of one of 
um, our mutual friends, Amir surprised me with like a surprise date to one of my favorite restaurants. For our first day. Really lovely. And then we were, you know, out for, for New Year's. And I was like, well, you know, we need to be made official now. He's like, we are going out. And I was like, yeah, but you haven't asked me out yet. You haven't asked me out. And then he asked me out. Like, it was like in the cross section in Leeds between Queen's Court and Viaduct. I, I always I know where that is yeah <laughs> yeah and I was and he was like yeah and I'm like oh my god it's official now <laughs> yeah I always I always like to take his lead on these type of things because as much as he says he likes surprises he does he likes an organized surprise he likes a surprise but know that it's coming cut to when you proposed to me yeah and that was like amazing but I hated you at the same time because it wasn't <laughs> organized in my head yeah so um you know yes i need to be here at the moment let's explain the oh, moment yeah. in great detail <laughs> you know one and a half years later we were living together and everything i was like i'm, I'm ready to be you know, proposed to you know this needs to happen now <laughs> i'm ready and um i said like, it needs to be on like a friday or a saturday so i can have the weekend to celebrate and all that kind of thing but he picked me up from work on a monday on a monday and um, this is when I was a, a high school teacher, so I was going to do some tutoring in the evening. And um, he bought me my favorite snack, my Bombay mix, to shut me up. And he was like, "Let's go for a little walk." And I was like, "No, I, I can't go for a walk now. I've got tutoring." I'm like, babe, this is not a walk time. I'm not dressed for a walk. He was like, "Let's do it." He gave me my food, so I'd be quiet. We went to um, one of our favorite places to go for a walk. You know, it's peaceful. It was just our quiet place. And he was like. Oh, imagine like we had an engagement party here, like, you know, outdoors, like a festival type thing, because I love festivals. And I was like, well, I need to be you know, engaged for that. And I turned around and he was on one knee. Oh. And, yeah, and here I was with Bobby Mix all in my beard and my face, like food all down myself. And I was like, what's going on? Oh, my God, it's happening. And yeah, it, it was amazing because it took me by complete and total shock. It was a Monday, a Monday. I had to go to work every day with a hangover that week, pretty much. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm sure you managed to party all week and weekend, Amir. I'm sure it wasn't a problem yes. for you. Yes. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> oh, I love it. Did it go as you planned then, Amir? Yeah, it did, actually. It went better than I, than I planned, actually, because, like, I, I proposed and then... Meals. He, uh, yeah, I uh, made us a three-post meal afterwards and... Oh. In came the engagement presents and cards, and it's always nice to be loved, isn't it? So that was <laughs> and then um, and then we got married. Oh, and how was your wedding day? Where did you do that? The, wed the wedding day was nice. We um, opted for a registry wedding as opposed to uh, a bit, you know, a, a grand gesture, shall we say? Although South Asian weddings tend to be quite big, we thought, well, gay marriage has only been legal for what five years then or something and we thought well we might as well do whatever we want with it so we decided to do a registry wedding um we had a henna ceremony to symbolize good luck and then we had a really nice uh, private uh, meal with our guests but it was a very exclusive event shall we say uh, i think we only had 10 guests yes yeah oh, wow it was a very and intimate, it was a secret it was a secret wedding yeah we didn't reveal the date to anyone Lost a few friends as a result, but well, ever. But, you know, our, 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 our sanity, safety and everything had to come yeah. first. Over the course of them two days, got to have conversations with each and every guest. I remember yeah. every moment. Not yeah. That's fantastic, actually, because at the end of the day, wedding is about two people, isn't it? It's not about 
you know, the family and the, the aunts and the uncles and the nieces and the nephews and, the, you know, everybody wants to stick their oar in, don't they? And Yeah, it's definitely about two people. Three people if you're into it, but... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, never say never. So I'm guessing you don't meet many other men in your or even women in your situation, many other South Asian Muslim couples. I mean, when we got married, we realized that we are quite a rarity. Somebody once described us as unicorns. They said that, you know, you don't realize as to how uncommon this is. Even we didn't realize. No, we didn't. Even our registrar said that in 21 years of her career, she hadn't seen anything like this. So we realized that we are the first gay South Asian married couple to come out of Bradford I mean we don't identify as Muslim so you know we we, we right. are not religious but definitely it's not very common within the South Asian community I do know of a couple South Asian couples um, and I do know of South Asians who are out and gay but I think two brown people together yeah. who are gay and South Asian that's not very and, uh, and uh, you know really out there public figures you know, going for unapologetically, it, unapologetically queer, nail and... polish wearing, drag doing. Yeah. So, who does the drag? That will be me. I play a character called Lady Bushra. I identify as a drag comedian. And that's a lot of fun. I've seen some of your work on Instagram. I've been stalking you a bit. Yes. Oh, it's always nice to talk to a fan. Thank you. So much. <laughs> Fantastic. So, how often do you do that? I mean, that was fairly organic. I haven't been doing it for a long time, but. I'm already being referred to as icon and legend, but so that just goes to show how unregulated drag, the drag industry is. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I play an alter ego uh, called Lady Bushra, who is a perpetual 19-year-old bad girl from Bradford. So you can only guess as to where my uh, references are from. Yeah. But you know, to be honest, I wouldn't be able to do something like that had I not had the support of an open-minded partner like my husband. Yeah. You know, he, he he really does support me and my creativity. And I support his with his poetry. He's a published poet. Oh, uh, are you? Uh, wow, what a... And he's really good at literature. No, no, I'm not. See, that, that's the mark of a true artist, a true creative, you know, that's humble, it. humble, very, very few grand, unlike me, mediocre talent, but willing to throw it everywhere and everywhere. Oh. <laughs> but I love that you guys have just got such a rapport and you're really keen to put yourself out there, aren't you? So, you know, you've also got your own podcast, which is really important to you, isn't it? Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, we, um, it's a You Don't Love Me podcast. Um, by the You Don't Love Me Boys. That's who we are now. Yeah. And we started that a couple of years ago when we um, got married. And we started it because, you know, I really wanted to talk to people yeah. <laughs> without them having to talk back at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> Fantastic. And, uh, and we, we started it on, a, on an iPad, just an iPad, no equipment, nothing, with me just getting progressively drunk as the podcast went on. And it just started snowballing if I'm honest with you it just grew and grew and grew and we started getting great guests on it and it became more than a podcast we were connecting with so many other um, queer South Asians we were connecting queer South Asians together I don't get drunk anymore we have proper equipment it's all official Yay, well done, <laughs> so it's all structured and yeah, you've got to start somewhere though don't you you've got to start somewhere yeah, no, it's um, great. And you tackle some serious issues as well. I saw you got an episode yes. talking about the fact that you both left Islam and you're not, you don't identify as Muslim anymore. So, yes. you know, you're talking about some serious yes, stuff we, in your podcast as well. We, we talk about 
everything from you know it's life through you know our perspective so it's everything from like religion and culture with with jokes along the way you know we, we try, try to keep it some parts of it light and you know make our stories funny and stuff yeah. all the way to you know ariana grande and lady gaga we we honestly we talk about everything because we're not just one thing you know we're not just oh you know they're they're, they're brown and you know gay so they're just going to talk about you know leaving a religion or they're just going to talk about Gaga or they're just going to talk about being brown or just or do activism or talk about Bollywood or we're, we're not and we're not trying to be activists either no yeah we often get labeled as activists but we're really not activism no you're like a comedy double act as well aren't you actually you're very funny on your <laughs> yeah, I'll take that yeah <laughs> take that. did somebody say brown Anton Deck I'll take that <laughs> <laughs> this is what needs to happen yes it does it, it, does. it, it does need to happen like we give us a show on tv give us the tv give yeah. us every channel I think this is a great idea or, or at the very least your love story needs to be made into a, a Bollywood film doesn't it can you see? I can see that with loads of the dancers, yeah. Oh, lots yeah. Of gays, lots of drag queens in it as well. Very queer Bollywood number. Do you know what? I see it as a crossover film. I'm really glad you brought Ooh. this up, Emma. I see Brad Pitt playing me. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I would say The Rock would play my husband. Yeah. He He's living his fantasy here, isn't he? He would be riding a cow in India and I will be on a stallion in Hollywood and then, like, you know, we meet in the middle or something. We both came from the same place. Neither of us came from anywhere like Hollywood. We are both riding that cow. We are both riding that cow. I'm telling you, if my life, oh, sorry, <clears throat> speaking to existence, when my life gets turned into a movie, it will be a crossover. Because we're British South Asians. So where did you get Hollywood and a cow from? Because cows, Indian. We're not Indian. Oh, no, tigers. Okay. That's Indian. <laughs> no, this is a teaser for our podcast. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it just? <laughs> and, a really good, and a really good teaser as well. Well, I'm blooming thrilled to have met you both. And uh, I feel like we need to stay in contact. So I just need to stalk you on Instagram a bit more so that um, when this crossover movie is made or when you become the brown ant and deck, I can say, I met them first. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and when you continue to be more and more iconic we can be like we knew emma when but no thank you so so much thank you so much for having us uh, and for um, taking the time to hear our story yeah uh, no, and well, sharing it with your listeners it really genuinely means the world to us oh thank you and i stick all your role models at the beginning because you know it is important for people like yourselves to share your story because there aren't enough stories like that out there and there's not enough people you know talking about these issues so thank you on behalf of the community i'm sure there'll be lots of young people or even older people in the closet who will be really inspired to have heard what you said today thank well, you, thank you so much. much really appreciate that you ready the weekend outing with emma goswell virgin radio pride Oh, thank you so much to my first guests, Amir and Amir. Aren't they cute? I really do hope they'd become the next Anton Deck. Don't forget, you heard them here first. Uh, so, Tokyo 2020 has kicked off, uh, albeit a year late and with no spectators. Um, it'll also be an Olympics like no other for another reason. There will be more out and proud trans athletes than ever before. I'm about to speak to an absolute legend. Chelsea Wolfe is the first transgender athlete to qualify for Team USA. Yep, she is in the BMX freestyle squad and I can't wait to talk to her. Chelsea, thanks so much for talking to me this evening. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me on and the kind words, I'm flattered. Ah, well, I say this evening, you're in San Diego, so it's a, a totally different time zone for you, isn't it, basically? But let's just start at the very beginning. 
why was it that um, BMX riding was such a like a thrill for you? Why was it, why did it become your sport? I think the big thing about it was the just freedom of expression that you have through BMX freestyle, which was something that I dearly needed as a closeted LGBTQ plus kid dealing with a lot of neurodivergence and just so many other things in my life felt like a lot of aspects of my life were out of my control. And I didn't really have any outlets for the creative energy that I had in me. And when I got into freestyle, it just became like this healthy outlet where I could let out all of this energy, create anything that I wanted to. And it was really easy to channel all that passion into riding. Well, I heard that you used to hang around a lot in uh, skate parks in Florida in your youth. And I think you're right. There's some sort of of subculture, isn't there, with the skateboarders and the riders that, would you say, is a very accepting clan of people, really? Yeah, I think for the most part, I have found that the BMX community and especially the skate community tends to be much more accepting than just overall society. Uh, Society has improved a bunch, but I think the small pockets within BMX freestyle and skateboarding are much more inclusive and accepting just because it's already such like a almost counterculture thing because it is such a creative and expressive and individualistic Mm. thing that like draws a lot of people who have a lot to express into it. So I think you do tend to just end up with people who are ready to accept the way that other people express themselves because they have their own way. Yeah, I've not thought about it like that, but actually you're right, it is a very creative sport. It's like sort of gymnastics in the air, isn't it really? It's not just about the speed, it's about agility. I mean, I've just spent the last 20 minutes watching a load of your videos on Instagram and you are fearless, right? Where do you get, <laughs> where do you get that you. from? <laughs> I, uh, I wouldn't say I'm fearless. I actually, I deal with a lot of fear that I have to overcome mm. and I even have an anxiety disorder. For me, I feel so comfortable on a bike that I'm able to kind of transcend into a mental space that allows me to more or less like slow down time and just stay focused and calm even when I'm doing really scary things. But then off the bike, I'm like a total klutz and I like knock my shoulders into things all the time, stub my toe, <laughs> drop stuff. I'm like, you know, <laughs> that's crazy because you can do some amazing things in the air. I was just watching you practice your what they call knack knacks. Uh, yes, the one where I like took one foot off, turned the bike kind of almost backwards. <laughs> yeah, you, you're basically in the middle of the air and you spin the bike round. You're holding onto the handlebars, but spin the entire bike round like 360 degrees in the middle of a jump. So that would be a tail whip. I actually haven't gotten one of those like landed feet back in the pedals, but the knack knack. I actually turned the bike to face backwards going to the left and then stop the rotation and bring it back to the right. That's a knack-knack, right. Got <laughs> yeah, okay. There's a lot of terminology involved in this, but I'm sure that I don't know. About. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's like an entirely <laughs> different language. It's kind of fun to talk about it sometimes and like realize that, you know, the things that we say mean absolutely nothing to somebody who doesn't which I'm sure is interesting for the announcers and media people trying to cover this new sport in the Olympics because so many non-riders are going to be watching it for the first time oh is it the first time it's in the Olympics it is yeah yeah Yeah. BMX racing has been in since 2008 but this is the first time for BMX freestyle and skateboarding oh how exciting then fantastic Mm -hmm. yeah it's definitely exciting What's it been like, then this is not going to be a short answer to this question, but what's it been like being a trans woman in that sport? You know, have you found it welcoming or have you found it quite problematic? I think for the most part, it's been very welcoming and has allowed me to just develop into who I am as a person. 
I mean, my entire life has been centered around riding BMX. So obviously it's going to naturally develop in the environment that, you know, my life is taking place in. Um, and I feel like with BMX freestyle being such a creative, expressive community, that's much more accepting. Like we already talked about, Mm. it just has helped me to feel a lot more comfortable with being myself and learning how to accept and embrace who I am and not trying to just blend in and do the same thing that everybody else is doing, because like, that's the opposite of what you want to do on BMX freestyle. And in my opinion, you know, that's not what I want to do in just life in general either. So mm. yeah, it's been, um, there's been hiccups. There are, you know, pockets of the community that aren't quite as accepting of difference as others. But I think for the most part, like anytime that there's some big scary development going on with how the rest of society is reacting to me or trans people in general, it seems like BMX always leaves me pleasantly surprised with how accepting and supportive the community is. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. It might not be the same in football or soccer, as you guys call it, but um, it's good to hear that they've been um, quite progressive and uh, loving and caring. But they do, your sort of governing body, they do make you jump through hoops, don't they, in terms of competing professionally and your trans status. So they do make you prove certain things, don't they? It's not, it's not been an easy, an easy thing for you to do. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of regulations and those are actually set in place by uh, UCI, which is like Union Cyclist International. It's, it's French. They are an overall cycling organization and they've, you know, they, I think they originated with road biking, but they also regulate like elite level mountain biking, track cycling, BMX racing since 2008. So those rules are not even necessarily coming from the BMX community itself. More so like the, uh, the BMX community having to adjust to these new rules that are put in place by hmm. the UCI. But for me, I think it's fantastic that they actually do have some guidance in place that allows for me to have an opportunity to compete. Um, because prior to that, like you never really knew what you were going to get with BMX freestyle. The events were never kind of from a centralized organization. It was more just individual contests and jams put together by different promoters and organizers and you never knew how they were going to react to a trans person or what their roles yeah. were going to be what the format of the contest was going to be and with the UCI getting involved what I enjoy is that a lot of these contests now are running off of the same roles the same regulations under the same organizers and even follow the same format. So when we show up to a contest, we're not guessing like, okay, are we going to compete for 45 seconds or a minute on the course? Is it best run counts? Is it yeah. both runs count? Like we actually know how these things are going to go before we show up. And prior to that, you know, you could show up to a BMX contest and like have no clue how things were going to go down until you got there. That's good. Well, the important thing for you is that, you know, once you've done all your, your medical tests, that you are going to be judged the same as all the other women on that course, aren't you? That's the important bit for you. I think the tough thing with BMX freestyle is that because it's an individualistic and expressive thing, sort of like gymnastics, like you mentioned, but it's a lot more than just gymnastics that scoring them for a competition is very difficult because you're trying to take a thing that is appreciated subjectively and give it an objective score and it's it's really tricky I think to 
remove the outside influences as a judge for a contest because I've actually done a fair bit of judging myself for the Florida BMX state series. And um, it takes a great deal of training and mental effort, even as a judge to like, make sure you're scoring the riders on their individual performances and giving them a truly objective score and not allowing like your own personal preferences of riding styles or bike setups, or if they do a trick that is one of your personal favorites to do, but you know, maybe isn't quite as difficult as another trick that somebody else did. It's really tough to, I think, remove yourself from that in the heat of the moment as a judge, because so many things happen so quickly. So yes, you know, theoretically, we all have the same roles that we're following. We're all dealing with the same judges, but it is a very difficult thing to get like an objective, like this was exactly how good you did today. It's not as simple as BMX racing per se, where like you just, whoever crosses the finish line first wins. It really depends on the individual judges and what they think of your performance. So it's always tricky to, I think as a judge to like, put down what you think is a fair score, because there's always going to be somebody that says like, oh, that's not fair. I disagree with that. And like, they're trying to figure out ways to have a more like established criteria for how things are scored and how the scores are developed. But it's, it's really, it's trying to put an objective value on a subjective thing. So it's always going to be difficult to really compare rider to rider. I bet. Well, I bet there's loads of controversy when people that are expected to win don't win. Um, but I know you're excited because you are literally um, packing your bags and about to head off to Tokyo. Just that in itself, I think people would be pretty damn jealous, wouldn't they, really? Yeah, it's beyond my wildest dreams getting to ride bikes and just train as my profession. I feel so, like every kid who does a sport like dreams of one day doing it professionally and to actually make it happen is pretty surreal at times. God, well, not only that, you've gone on to make history because you are the first trans athlete to qualify for Team USA in an Olympic year. What was the reaction when, um, when you, it was announced that you were going to be, you're an alternate, aren't you? Which means you're the sort of third in place, so you're first reserve, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's, you know, going to be a mixed reaction, just society being a mixed bag I Mm. think uh there are a lot of people who are very happy for me and those are the people that really count and matter to me um but then of course there's the people who are upset and angry and saying that I don't deserve to be there and that um you know the the USOPC picked me as the athlete just because they're trying to be politically correct it's like no the scores and who gets to go is based on a subject or an objective mathematical point system yeah um yeah and it's just a lot of transphobia to overcome uh so that's unfortunate but I just block it out ride my bike and appreciate the support that's been coming in well quite right because you know whether you want it or not you will be and you are a role model to to so many trans people and and young people out there so how do you deal with the the criticism which you must hear that some of the transphobe will say it's not fair it's not an even playing field for you to be competing against women born women that that is what you've had to contend with isn't it yeah I mean it's it's honestly the easiest way to deal with that is just to know that these people who are saying that sort of thing have no clue what they're talking about they've never experienced life as a trans person they've never actually studied the way sex and gender functions in society and just in humans in general and I actually have lived experience and an education in sex and gender and like just the socio-political sort of theory thing in university where I have a much 
stronger understanding of how these things actually work than this, the average person who's never even thought twice about it in their life. I believe, was it uh, Judith Sargent Butler who said that, I can't remember the actual author, but said that like talking to a, a person about gender is like talking to a fish about water. Um, and that's, that's yeah. kind of a good analogy because most of these people have never even thought twice about their gender or how gender kind of is a basis of the structuring of our society, but it's all around them and it affects every single aspect of their lives because it's a building block of their life, even though they've never actually put any thought into this before. No, because they've got cis privilege, I guess, haven't they? They've never, they've never had to question it or, or think apart from, you know, the binary options that they were taught at a very young age. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's like asking a white person about race issues. It's like yeah. asking a non-disabled person about how life is for disabled people. Same exact thing. Like, you can't possibly hope to understand these things without listening to the groups that are affected by what you're, uh, what you're talking about. And it always seems to be that people want to speak over the groups and say that they know what it's like to exist as this marginalized identity better than the people who are living the experience themselves do. And the only way that somebody who hasn't actually lived the experience could learn about what it's like is by asking these people, even the top researchers who are studying, you know, what life is like for marginalized communities, they get their information by speaking to members of those marginalized communities. So it's just, it's a lot easier to ignore the hate knowing that it comes from a place of being misinformed and in many cases, just willfully ignorant. So we'd mentioned that you're literally on your way to um, Tokyo, aren't you? You will be going in, in the next few days, I think. But um, does it give you some, some sort of hope and some optimism that you're not the only trans athletes actually, are you, at the Games? So have you spoken to any of the other trans athletes at all? Um, I don't think any of the other trans athletes that are going to the games, although, you know, we should probably get in touch at some <laughs> point. I don't know. I, I kind of enjoy the fact that there's not just one of us going because it's been a goal of many of ours for so long. Trans yeah. people have been allowed to compete in the Olympics since I think the 2004 games. And like, we're just now finally having some of us qualify. And it's always been a question of like, who's going to be the first through the wall. And I think it's beautiful that like, it's not just one of us who made it as the first. It's really, it just is kind of reflective of, you know, what a community effort this has been from the start to mm. get our rights and our access to equal opportunities to a point where it's not just the one going, it's, it's several of us that have finally been able to make it happen through the combined efforts of everybody. God. Just on a personal note, then how important is it for you to be getting to Tokyo? <laughs> it's... Yeah, unreal. It, every now and then it'll like trickle through and just hit me what a like big deal this is to me because I'm still kind of in like preparation mode where like there's mm. so many things to get done. I'm still training and like it's kind of hard to take a moment to let the reality of the situation wash over me when my brain is still in like training mode, packing mode, preparation and everything. Um, but every now and then it'll kind of like work its way through all of that and it'll hit me like, wow. Like, yeah, you know, I feel like to everyone, Olymp like Olympians are just the pinnacle of working hard to achieve what seems like an impossible dream when you start off on it. And thinking back on when I set off on this goal five years ago and thinking back on when I first got into BMX freestyle as a kid who was like scared to exist and never imagined that I would get to do this professionally someday, given that I was a trans girl. It feels incredible to get to kind of like prove 
myself and all of the detractors wrong and just show what you can accomplish when you set your mind to it. God, absolutely. I've, I'm just I'm just amazed I'm actually speaking to a real live Olympic athlete. I mean, I just <laughs> when I was a child and used to watch Olympics, I was like, these people are gods. How do they do that? They must just like dedicate their life to sport. And you must do, you know, it's just mm-hmm. the pinnacle of human endurance, isn't it? Really what you've had to put your body through to get to that yeah. level. You know? you know, it's funny that you mentioned that I was on a um, like a kind of podcast roundtable thing with a number of other Olympic athletes. And I remember thinking at one point during this round table, like, wow, this is pretty exciting. I'm sitting here having a conversation with a, like a handful of Olympians. That's, that's cool. And then after like, I had that thought, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm an Olympian too. What? You're going to the Olympics. <laughs> it's yeah. It blows my mind. If I like take a second to think about it, because like, obviously I have to internalize this being my normal. This is my life. Otherwise, you know, the pressure yeah. is going to get to you. But then if like, I do remove myself from that, like focused, I'm an athlete, I ride BMX, this is my life. And I think about it, like, it's really cool. <laughs> it's super cool. God, but just imagine it could be so much more to come. I mean, you might not ride in this Olympics, but you might, something could happen. Anything, anything, well, this year has proven if nothing else and last year that anything can happen. So you could end up riding, you could end up winning, you could end up on a podium. But in any case, like, I do hope that I won't be needed. My goal for this games is to go there, get the course dialed, feel great, ready to go, you know, like mentally be prepared to try to win gold, but then not be needed because as the alternate, I only compete if one of the other two athletes doesn't get to, and they earn those positions. And I want them to get to compete in the positions that they worked so hard for. But then that said, moving forward, 2024 games is only three years away from now and I'm on such a stronger footing starting to try to qualify for that games than I was when I started trying to qualify for this one in 2016 so yeah the uh the future looks very bright but I definitely hope that for the Tokyo Olympics that I'm not actually going to be competing oh my god well I'm so excited for you and I'm so excited to watch your sport for the first time in the Olympics so I am going to be glued to the screens it's not till the end of the second week I think isn't it it's sort of at the end of the month isn't it um, yeah it's um July 31st and August 1st and actually while I'm thinking of it too speaking of watching my sport and stuff and the other two athletes that I mentioned I think it's pretty interesting and exciting and just so cool that the entire U.S. women's squad for BMX freestyle is openly gay. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to Sid, Sid Ziegler and we, we're not sure, but it might be the first time that has ever happened that like an entire Olympic squad is openly gay. This is so cool. Well, I hope you've got mm-hmm. some really cool like rainbow outfits or at least like tra- <laughs> trainers or some some nod to the rainbow or the trans flag that's going to be on the bike somewhere. I have thought about it. The um, I actually built up some absolutely beautiful bikes for the games um, and I'm really excited. I'm actually looking at them right now. They are like a red, chrome, white and blue with like some sparkles and stars oh. and stuff sprinkled in there, some flags in the, the decals. So yeah they're absolutely splendid bikes they unfortunately don't have rainbows on them I didn't Ah. think about it but it's kind of hard to incorporate the color scheme of like rainbow plus the red white and blue yeah Um, I feel like you know I can only like make 
my presence in the games so gay like I'm already extremely gay and like if I if I sprinkle more gay into it I might possibly make the universe implode (laughs) just from like too much gayness concentrated in one spot (laughs) oh I bloody love it hey just before you go what words would you like to say to anyone listening who's trans they're into sports but they they haven't really pursued it because they've been nervous to or you know there's just been too much else going on in their lives really and they they haven't really got to fulfill their potential what would you say to them keep trying and believe in yourself there's going to be people that hate and say nasty things about you no matter what you do in life so chase your dreams and don't let the fears of what if hold you back instead let the excitement of the positive what ifs drive you forward Because if you have the strength to exist as an LGBTQ plus person in this society that is still so restrictive and so oppressive to us, then you definitely have the strength of a champion. Fantastic. Well, Chelsea, it has been so wonderful to speak to you this evening, forward slash this morning in San Diego. And I wish you and everyone at Virgin Radio Pride wishes you the best of luck in competing in Tokyo. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Big thanks to Chelsea for chatting to me from her apartment in San Diego. Oh, I'd love to live that close to the beach in California. Anyway, um, I will definitely be watching next weekend when her teammates and maybe her will be competing in the first ever BMX freestyle event at the Olympics. Oh, Time for my final guest on this week's weekend outing with myself, Emma Goswell, and it's time to meet Tony Openshaw. Yep, he's a bit of a Manchester legend, actually. He's done more than most over the last 40 years to fight for the rights that, sadly, too many LGBT people now take for granted. So, Tony, let's go right back to the beginning, shall we? Maybe to your teenage years. Um, what were they like then growing up? What, what sort of decade are we talking when you were sort of discovering your sexuality? Right. Well, I'm, I'm 66 now. So I was born in the 50s and I realised I was gay 50 years ago, I think, when I was 16. Mm. And I find this really surprising even to myself every time I say this. But I lived in Bolton, which is quite a large town, but there was a gay pub about one bus stop away from where I lived and I did not know of its existence until I was about 20. Wow. Because nobody talked about it. Mm. Nobody talked about being gay. There was no education. There was no internet. It was so difficult to get information. And the fact that there was a gay pub like one bus stop away and it was just like it could have been a million miles away. But let's put this into context. This would have been the late 60s, early 70s. So the partial of decriminalisation of homosexuality would have only just gone through. It was still something that was very much frowned upon and not really talked about, I guess, wasn't it? And gay bars were very hidden. Yeah, definitely. And when I first started going to gay bars in Manchester, for example, all the windows were blacked out. You couldn't see into the pub. You know, Mantles was the first one that opened up as like a goldfish bowl. But before that, it was, you know... You couldn't see into the pubs. Yeah, so what was it like? Talk us us through going into a gay bar back in the day then. Oh, well, I went to a gay bar in in Bolton and somehow I got a hold of Gay News, a magazine, and I found out there was this gay bar in Bolton. I decided to go with a friend and we thought, this doesn't look very gay. And then we saw this sign that said, private party upstairs. 
we took a risk, we opened the door, we went up the stairs, and there was another little bar upstairs. Some people turned around and said, oh, you found us, love. <laughs> because it was so discreet. And you that know, was a secret gay party upstairs then, yeah. It was a secret gay party upstairs, secret gay bar. And also, when um, it first came out, you know, the newspapers and all the magazines and the literature, it was all under the counter. There was nothing on display. And I remember in uh, New York, New York, having to ask for the football pink, and they gave you the pink paper, but it was the, hidden under the counter. The football pink. <laughs> the football pink. That was oh it instead. God. But, so everything was very discreet. It was hidden. It was, you know, the bars were there in Manchester, you know, the Union, the New York, Rembrandt's, Thompson's. But they didn't advertise themselves as the gay village. You know, it wasn't like that. So it was just a few bars around. So was this the 70s then when you started going out, I guess? This is in the mid-70s, yeah, when I first came out. And what was it like? Was there a high level of homophobia and intolerance in the city at that time? It's difficult to say, but, I mean, on one occasion, I've been attacked on, on Sackville Street. Jesus. Me and my partner, we came out of Napoleon's. Um, there was about 12 lads on the other side of the street, and they said, get the queers. And um, they came over and started kicking us, and I fought back. They ran off. And my partner, Philip, was lying on the floor, unconscious. An ambulance came, the police came. He had to have stitches in his chin. And at that time, this is early 80s, uh, the police were very unhelpful. I was going to say, would you report it to the police? But they were there anyway. So what, they didn't, they didn't take your report seriously? They didn't try and investigate it? No, they didn't take it so seriously. And um, they gave me some books to look through, photographs. And it was, everything was a blur anyway, so I couldn't do that. We wouldn't have reported this, actually, if Philip hadn't mm. been conscious. And it's only because that happened and the ambulance turned up that the police came. But otherwise, we wouldn't even have reported it. Well, that was the time, I guess, where there was a bit of a dark history, wasn't there, with the police force in Manchester? The um, police chief accusing gay men of wallowing in a cesspit of their own making, I think was the phrase, wasn't it? That's it, very much so, yes. I was never actually in a club that was raided but you were aware that clubs did get raided at those times mm. uh, to check for licentious dancing. What, I've never even heard that word. What does that Have mean? Have you not heard that? No. It was a bylaw in Manchester from 1883 or something like that. I can't remember the exact date. Uh, that, uh, you know, two women or two men dancing together was licentious and against oh. the law. And the, the clubs got raided and people were photographed and arrested for that. Gosh. So you know people that were arrested then for dancing well, with a member of the same gender? You heard rumours and you heard stories. I mean, mm. luckily I was never in the club at, the, at that particular time. Gosh. So do, at any point did you come out to your family, to your friends? Was it something you felt safe to be able to do so? I felt I had no, I had no um, alternative but to come out <laughs> because I knew that I was gay and I didn't feel that I was going to change. You know, that was what I wanted to be, you know, I want, yeah. I accepted myself. So I did come out to people and unfortunately my family ostracised me. And Gosh, I didn't know that to me. Yeah, and even to this day, my brother and sister don't speak to me, so. And how long ago was that? Oh gosh, <laughs> 40, 40, about 45 years. So I have seen my brother and my sister about three times in the last 40 odd years. 
I literally um, couldn't tell if you were crying or laughing then because you probably don't know how to how to react to that, do you? Or you've just got used to it over the years. You get used to it because you become resilient, don't you, to your situation. I've had some difficult times in my life, you know, but um, not being accepted and just for being a gay person, you wouldn't think of it nowadays. Well, unfortunately, but, some people still do get rejected by their family and, and don't speak to them. Yeah. So you haven't spoken to your parents or your siblings then for 45 years? Well, my parents are both deceased now. Mm. And you never sort of had that conversation or, or made up with them? Well, I mean, when my mum died, I found out from my younger sister, who lives in Bratislava in Slovakia, that my mum had died. My, my brother in Bolton didn't even ring me to tell me. That's how bad it is, you know, how poor and uh, difficult the situation was. It sounds like you've been through absolute hell and back to just be abandoned by your family or just rejected by your family like that. So, I mean, how on earth did you turn it around? And, you know, you've lived your life as a happy gay man for the last 45 years. Yes, um, you know, I've had difficulties, but I was lucky enough to meet Philip in 1980 and we lived together for 31 years. So, wow. you know, that was a nice long-term relationship. That's very long-term. Yes. Unfortunately, sadly, he died of cancer. I'm sorry to know that. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, I'm a single person now uh, on my own, but... Um, yeah, you know, having the support of somebody and, you know, being a loving couple together was, you know, a great thing. He must have brought a lot of comfort. And, well, he was your family then, wasn't he, really? Because oh, your, your blood sort of turned their back on you, but he was your family. Yes. And as well as lots of, you know, friends who are LGBT, you know, who have who become your family, your chosen family. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, you're such a stalwart of the Manchester scene, aren't you? You know, everybody knows you. Everyone knows Tony. You know, you have got, you've got a big LGBT family, haven't you? That's true, yes. But, I mean, all of this that you've been through, it must have made you incredibly angry as well. I mean, because you have gone on to do so much campaigning work, I guess, is that where the anger came from, that you just, you know, you wanted to be accepted as a gay man in your family and in the world around you? Yes. I mean, to me, it just seems so obvious, but I couldn't understand why people couldn't accept somebody to be gay. Hmm. But also, at the same time, it's made me a person that, that feels like I want to be anti-sexist, I want to be anti-racist, mm. I want equality for all people, we're all human beings. So I couldn't understand people who, you know, for example, are, are gay, but, you know, express racist comments. You know, it didn't make sense to me. I had to campaign against these, these issues and, you know, give support where I can. I mean, sadly, there's a lot of people within our community that are against each other. You know, you, you do hear gay men come out with misogynistic things. You hear, you know, people yeah. across the board coming out with transphobic things. It's, it goes on, doesn't it? It still goes on, yes. But I think the situation has got a lot better over the years. You know, with better education and more, much more acceptance now of gay people. You know, because of legal changes, but also because of, I think society has changed for the better. I think it has, and I think you're a lot to do with that, actually, because I know you've been out with your placards more than once and on more than one cause and one, more than one issue. Um, so what I want to find out next is exactly how you fought so hard for our community. So, Tony, tell us a bit about maybe one of the first campaigns you got involved in. Uh, well, I first went to uh, Gay Pride marches in the 70s, mid-70s. I think the first one in, was in London was in 1972, and I wasn't at that. I started going about 1975 onwards. 
and I still have all the badges. Yeah, but, about um, 75, 76, 77, 78. Oh, amazing. What was it like, though? Because, you know, I'm imagining it's very different to Pride today. I mean, how many people actually were at a Pride in 1975? Um, well, I remember being on one Pride where there was probably about 2,000 people. Gosh, quite a few, though, uh, yeah. Which is, you know, reasonable. But, um, you know, nowadays it's, there's 100,000, isn't there? Yeah. And did you feel safe? Was there any animosity? Did the police protect you? Yes, there's so many people. I mean, you probably heard this expression, you know, we're here, we're queer, we're not going shopping. Yeah. You know, this... <laughs> Never quite understood where it came from, but I do. I did learn that when I went to my first Pride in London, actually, at 91. Yeah. I remember being on the underground in, in London and you look around and then you think, everybody's gay. Everybody's <laughs> gay because we're all heading to the same starting point for the Pride yeah. Parade. Yeah. And, and people just started chanting and it just felt amazing you know that you see so many other positive people it was just you know a fantastic situation i think in 1981 the national pride parade uh, was moved to huddersfield because the police were raiding the gemini club in huddersfield on a regular basis okay. so in solidarity it moved to huddersfield you know i felt quite safe on the on the demonstration marching to the place but on the way back we were coming back in twos and threes back to the train station mm. and there was a lot of uh, name calling and, you know people stood outside pubs and it felt quite scary quite you know difficult but generally when I've been on Pride it's just the fantastic atmosphere the the knowledge that there's so many people around you know who are really positive just great what was it like on the one in 75 then? I mean, did you go back and was there a big party in a park somewhere or was that really not part of it? It was just a protest. Oh, it? no, there was a, a, a march and then there was a big party in the park with speeches and, and music and so on. And then what other sort of campaigning did you then start getting involved in? Was there any sort of direct action um, stuff? Well, you the, well, we had Section 28, which was the um, Local Government Act, which Margaret Thatcher brought in. Uh, we said that you cannot promote homosexuality in schools. It brought around a lot of self-censorship in schools and local mm. authorities. You know, were they able to give grants to groups? Could people talk about this in school? I mean, I, I had no sex education in school or at home. So, but this was, things had started to change and this brought in a real censorship, a real difficulty. And what was quite funny at the time, look, well, looking back, is that the, this was a section of a local government act and they kept inserting a clause or taking a clause out. So every week we were making a new banner, section 27, section 28, section 29, and we had a new banner. So it wasn't <laughs> just end, section 28 then, no? In the end, it, it became section 28. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, it became part of the law. Yeah. But, but I spoke at the rally in um, Albert Square in front of 20,000 people. That must have been my, terrifying. My knees were shaking, yes. Like, a bit like a swan. <laughs> calm, calm at the top end, but my legs were waving around underneath the water. But you're doing it because and, you're angry. I mean, it was something that still to this day people talk about. I mean, even on this show last week, I spoke to a queer couple and they are convinced that their lives were made a lot harder and it took them a lot longer to understand who they were and what they were. Because of Section 28, you know, it's still yeah. affecting people to this day. Yeah. Because they yeah. weren't allowed to talk about anything to do with LGBT at school. And then soon after that, HIV became an issue. 
Mm. And I got very much involved with ACT UP, which was uh, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which was an organisation started in America, spread out all over the world. And we had a, a group in Manchester. And what sort of protests did you do? Because they were famous for doing some quite radical things, weren't they? We did. It was non-direct, uh, I'm sorry, non-violent <laughs> direct action. Mm. And, and um, one of the famous things we did was to um, go to Strange Ways Prison, they're called HMP Manchester. Yeah. And uh, we got tennis rackets and we got tennis balls and we split the tennis balls and we put condoms inside and we batted them over the wall into strange ways. And, oh, wow. um... <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and then um, we spoke, we were on television about it and, and the Manchester Evening News. I'm sure it's still available on the internet somewhere. Yeah. Did you get into trouble for that then? No, we didn't. But I'm sure the prison guards probably trouble. thought you were trying to get drugs in, weren't, didn't they? And then as soon well, as they opened them and thought, oh, well, they're just sending condoms, that's fine. So we were bouncing tennis balls over the wall, over the wall with condoms inside. Uh, we contacted the social workers inside. Uh, later on, a couple of weeks later on, we had a meeting. We explained our concerns about why condoms should be available in prisons, mm-hmm. you know, because people may be having unprotected sex, people may be sharing drugs. You know, I mean, I know it may be illicit, but these things do happen. You've got to accept the facts. Exactly. So um, they changed the policy and condoms uh-huh. became available. So that was a great success. That's fantastic. We used to do a lot of protests outside uh, petrol stations because of the policies around not employing people who are HIV positive and, you know, things like that. And regularly so you- used to do die-ins and... Other, other issues. Yes, tell us about the die-ins then. That's a, that's a famous thing that Act Up used to do, isn't it? We used to do these in Market Street, you know, the main shopping centre in Manchester. Yeah. Uh, with cardboard coffins and people would literally lie down on the floor and we'd have placards explaining that, you know, drugs should become available, drugs should be cheap, this sort of issue. You know, we're just, just highlighting the issues really, just to try and get the publicity. But by doing this it by all... lying somewhere and pretending to be dead. I mean, all these issues were before the internet, you know, mm-hmm. these campaigns. So, mm-hmm. you know, to get the publicity out, we, we wanted to get into the, into the media, into the newspapers, the television, radio and so on. So we used to do very colourful, dramatic demonstrations to try and get those images across and those stories across. Mm. And did you ever get into trouble doing that sort of stuff? Never. I've been arrested on demonstrations, but uh, with with up, I think the police were a little bit afraid of us. <laughs> because, you know, the issue was HIV, you know, mm. and um, I would approach the police and say, you know, we're not obstructing anywhere, we're just doing a, a, a direct action, we'll be gone soon, and nobody got arrested during those, at those times. Oh, fantastic. So what, how, what, what led to you actually being arrested then? Was that another, another type of protest? That was another protest. Um, I was protesting outside a police station and the police came and grabbed me and took me inside and put me in the cell. <laughs> I mean, you're laughing now, but it was probably quite stressful at the time, Tony. I'm laughing now, yes, but uh, it's just experiences of life, isn't it? Um, well, not for everybody, no. I mean, a lot of people... We'll just sit back and wait for change to happen. But you know, I wanted to interview because you've you're actually been out there on the front line. You know, lying in the street pretending to be dead. You know, standing yes. outside police stations and getting dragged in them. So, what were you protesting that time? 
Well, I was convicted for obstructing a police officer in the course of his duty. And it, that was actually an anti-racist demo that we'd been on. And afterwards, we went to the police station to carry on the demonstration. And the police just wanted to break it up. And they arrested a few of us and took us into the station. So mm. the ringleaders. So did you end up with a criminal record or did they not press charges? No, I've got, I've got a criminal record, but it's now spent. What other protests did he go on then or, or stuff that he helped organise? One of the things I did was setting up a LGBT asylum seekers group, which I'm very proud of because I think it was the first group in the UK. And this was in about um, the year 2000. So it was linking the, the two issues together, you know, about anti-racism and asylum together with LGBT. Mm. And we had a small group, maybe like 12 to 15 people, but it involved both men and women, you know, lesbians, gay men, one person who's transgender, I think, but mainly lesbians and gay men from Africa, from the Middle East, and people who were claiming asylum because of their sexuality. And it was basically a support group, a social group. We got a small grant from the um, Manchester Pride and we just carried out a few activities, you know, social activities, going out for meals, going out for trips and things like that. It was just to give people a bit of support and help. It's so difficult for asylum seekers, isn't it? Particularly for asylum seekers who are seeking asylum based on their sexuality or gender identity because they're forced to prove all sorts of things, aren't they? Yeah, the Home Office has moved the goalposts several times you know, with that issue. Um, it's not an automatic thing that you're granted asylum. The Home Office say, we don't believe that you're a lesbian. We don't believe mm. that you're gay. You know, quite often it's their defence. It's a tricky sad situation for people. Really hard. And, and if you know certain people, it can take years and years and years sometimes. Mm. And then you've also set up a group for older LGBT people, haven't you? Yes. Well, I retired six years ago. I had to do something so, <laughs> <laughs> to keep busy. So uh, I now run a group called Out in the City, and we're linked to Age UK in Manchester, but we're a self-organised group. We've got over 70 members, but we have about 150 people who get out, read our emails, and um, send out bulletins and you know keep in touch with people by telephone. And we've been organising regular meetings now, I want some restrictions eased with the COVID. We'll be organising trips out, you know, days out and coach trips and so on. Because I bet some of your uh, members have just been really isolated, haven't they, over the last 18, 20 months or so of COVID because they might not be as, you know, linked up on technology or confident about going out and about. I mean, that is the issue. Our oldest member is 92. Wow. We've got quite a number of people who don't use the internet at all, mm. you know, so we have to keep in touch by text message or, or by landline or yeah so it, it is you know quite difficult for people and a lot of people of our age group you know i mean we had two members of our group who've um, had electric shock therapy you know in the 60s and 70s no way i think even the lives of ordinary people like myself <laughs> and others in the group is extraordinary mm. because of the times we've lived through you know but we've had people who've you know, threatened with police, you know, because they had nowhere else to meet, you know, except in public toilets or things like that, you know. So people who've had psychiatric treatment, you know, because of the being gay, it was still accepted as a, you know, a psychiatric illness, you know, for until 
relatively quite recently. Yeah, some point in the 90s, wasn't it? It was still accepted as being that. I think point. about 92 or something, yeah. yeah. So. Unbelievable. So a lot of our members are, are, you know, don't have family, don't have children. So I have been quite isolated during this last period with the COVID restrictions. Yeah, well, thank God you're there to bring them together and uh, hopefully they can get out a bit, you know, over the next coming weeks. What are some of the next things that you're planning to campaign about? Because I know you're, you're never resting, are you, Tony? You've always got something else that you're going to be campaigning about or doing. <laughs> well, we're, I talk, we're trying to do more work with making the group more diverse, mm-hmm. you know, so encouraging uh, more people involved. We've got um, all the letters of the alphabet, really, in the group. We've got, uh, we've got lesbians, we've got gay men, we've got bisexuals, we've got trans men, trans women. But, you know, the, the people from uh, different nationalities as well, I'd like it to be even more diverse because we are dominated by gay men in the group. Mm. So it's always like the way, it. isn't it? Well, I don't know how that happens, but it does happen, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I just want to encourage as many people to say, you know, we're, we're a friendly group, come along you know, you get support, make friends. So, you know, I'd like to extend the group that way. And there's a lot of work to do about trans issues at the moment. The trans are being uh, attacked in in many ways. So, you know, to try and get that support going. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's still a long way to go for equality for trans men and women and non-binary people, isn't there? It really is. Yes. So, I mean, if people are in Manchester, they can join your group, can they? Or is it open to people anywhere? No, it's, we're based in Manchester and we have meetings in Manchester, but if you can get to us, if you live in Bolton, Rochdale, anywhere, you can come and see us. Okay, yes. so do you want to give out the website then, maybe? Because there might be people that want to get in touch. And uh... Yes, it's, well, just all one word, outinthecity.org. Outinthecity.org. Well, that's nice and simple. E- easy to find, yes. Oh, fantastic. Oh, well, thank you, Tony. And what, what keeps you going? What keeps you campaigning and just always fighting the fight? Uh, well, I'm looking forward to a long life and I want a happy life. So I have to keep fighting because we have to keep an eye out so that our rights aren't taken away. It's been a fight to get our rights. So we've got to try and keep that. Just more of the same, really. It keeps me going, being active. Big thank you to Tony Openshaw. If you missed him, where were you? Great interview with him. And listen, if you are also part of the older LGBT community, don't forget, we mentioned it on the first ever show a couple of months ago, Silver Pride kicks off next weekend, next Friday, and it's all online, so you can take part wherever you are. Just go to silverprideuk.com. There's some really cool people taking part, like Alan Cummings, Simon Callow, and Val McDermott. Oh, And one of my faves, Bright Light, Bright Light, is doing a DJ set from NYC, no less. And if that doesn't whet your appetite enough, what about this? Our very own Matt Cain will be in conversation with Matthew Todd. He's a legend. He's the author of Straight Jacket, How to Be Gay and Happy. Don't miss it. Tickets again. Uh, well, they're free, but go to silverprideuk.com. Sadly, it's time for me, Emma Goswell, to sign off uh, after another bumper weekend outing. Thank you for your company. I hope you have a wonderful week ahead. We'll do it all again uh, next week, which, can you believe it, will be August. Uh, yes, and despite it being school holidays, we'll be finding out how to make schools more LGBT plus friendly. We'll also be finding out about the world's biggest LGBT plus film prize. 